Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, where we're taking a brief break from the wise man's fear to discuss Patrick Rothfuss's newest release, The Narrow Road Between Desires. This expanded reimagining of the Bast-centric short story, The Lightning Tree, came out just a few weeks ago as of this recording, so we're taking this episode to compare it to the original volume. This week, we're tackling the second third of the book, midday through afternoon. Hope you enjoy. Quick note, there are a lot of changes. We will only be discussing things that are changes between the story that was written and the story as it stands now. But let me also go through all of our normal disclaimers. So this is going to be a little bit different from our normal format as we are just going to do a short comparison between The Lightning Tree and The Narrow Road Between Desires. We will be doing our little shtick at the end that is the seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives, but pretty much scrapping the rest of it. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or Nate Taylor or their publisher, Daw Books. And we naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the short stories, The Lightning Tree, because yeah, and or The Narrow Road Between Desires, and this little regard of silent things. So spoilers, 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 spoilers for a book that is pretty dang new. Spoilers. Also a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we do love exploring. That, let's go ahead and dive in. So we start with midday birds, and we start with Bath's bath. Try saying that one five times fast. No, thank you. Good. But I think we may have covered this in the last one. Total shampoo commercial. We then get Reich's letter, such as it is. And I think that's where we cut it off. That sounds about right. Following that, we have the interlude with Viet, the mayor's daughter. Which has been expanded a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. And we didn't spend a lot of time on Viet the last time around. I guess, like, she's a cute character. She's a cute little girl. She's also pretty snotty because she's, like, upper middle class in a land full of very not that. She's the sort of character who could very quickly become one note, and you're really glad that she only has just the one scene. So far. But I do want to bring up something. I know that there are theories out there that the little princess from The Princess and Mr. Whiffle is, oh, what's her name? Probably Ambrose's sister or whatever. I can't remember the name of the princess or whatever she is that a lot of people have kind of connected her to. Or possibly being Ari. Again, theories there that Ari is that princess, is that person. And maybe it isn't Ambrose's sister. I can't remember. I'm sorry, guys. If we've talked about this at all, it was probably in one of the Patreon exclusive bits from like three years ago. Holy crap, we've been doing this a long time. Yes, we're, I want to say on our fourth anniversary soon because we get about 10,000 downloads a year and we're at about 41,000 downloads 
Like, no. That sounds about right. Yep. So we have been doing this a tenth of our lives. <laughs> I just made Will blue screen. Hello, <laughs> darkness, my old friend. <laughs> we don't have copyright approval. <laughs> anyway. Yes. So, but there are theories out there that connect the princess and Mr. Wiffle to the land of the name of the wind, to the story of the name of the wind. And I can't remember if it's Ari or if it's the weird little princess or if the princess and Ari are the same person or if there's any connection to Amber. I can't. I'm sorry. I could go look it up. Correct us on the Discord. Also, like, I am on the Reddit, but he, it, it's at least gotten more activity since the new book came out. So that's cool. Let's go on. <laughs> I was just trying to say that it seems like Viet also kind of fits that bill. And she has a magic kitten. All kittens are magic, though. Like, that's the easy answer. That is the easy answer. How do you know she's magic? All kittens are magic. So after that little encounter with Viet, we finally get Reich making his appearance. And the thing that strikes me, and I think probably the biggest change that we see is that in this version of the story, because of the gift that Reich relayed to Bast through Kostrel, he now has an almost supernatural hold on Bast. That's one of the major changes. The other major change that I saw was either clarification or reattributing the couple of sentences where the you deserve more of the belt than you get, where it definitely in this version is clear that Reich is the one saying those words. And it's almost like he's at once talking to Bast and trying to like be angry with Bast. And it turns around in his heads and in his words towards himself. I kind of read it as Reich being angry at this world that has really put him in a tough spot through no fault of his own, specifically his relationship with his father, who we learn is an abusive drunk. I can see exactly what you're saying, and I agree with you. But in the previous, in the lightning tree, it came across as though Bast was telling Reich that he was a little bastard that deserved more of the belt than he got. And now it's very clear that Reich is parroting his father. Yeah, I agree with you. And it also means that Bast is a little bit more sympathetic this time around in this reading. We see that Reich is caught up in this cycle of abuse. We get the sense that Reich has absorbed this idea that he deserves the abuse that he receives. This idea that the amount of punishment that is or isn't given is what determines behavior. And at the same time, he is all messed up over it. I think you see more and more of that as he talks about how he doesn't want to be the kind of person who wants to kill his own father. And I mean, I know that I mentioned this in the last time that we discussed this portion of the story in The Lightning Tree, but I grew up with an unpredictably later found out was probably constantly drunk, abusive person as ostensibly the person who was my parent and there were definitely times where like I never I never outright would have harmed 
or killed her, but there were definitely times where I knew that if she were in need of medical attention, I might not help her. And I'm not proud of that fact, but she was not a good person. Yeah, it's a tough position for any child to be in. Like, I was left alone with her after my dad passed from the time I was 10 to the time I was 18. And it wasn't a one-off thing. Let's just put it that way. There's no two ways about it. Reich's had a tough life, and you did too. And, you know, it's work to break that cycle of abuse. And we see Reich really working things out as he goes. You know, the big question that he's spending a lot of time mulling is, does he want his father gone or does he want him dead? And I think there's a little bit more debate on his part in this version. It seems like he's a lot more conflicted over it. I think part of that is because there's more space. For one thing, and I think also it makes it feel a little richer. The conclusion that Reich ultimately comes to is not one that he comes to lightly. And it's not one that he comes to without deliberation. And he comes to the decision that he wants his father gone forever, but not to be killed. The thing I also really see is that the thing that Reich says the most is, yes, he's willing to pay so long as... His family does not have to pay this price. That it's just him. There's a little bit of that man of the house idea in that that is inherent throughout a patriarchal society. And that should never have to fall on a child. I think also what we're seeing here is because he's the one who has elected this course of action, if his sisters or his mother bore any of the price for his choices he would feel really guilty about it. And he's already consumed with guilt here. So let's move on to noon obligation, which begins with Reich taking a brief pee break. And then this whole section is pretty much entirely new, but also not new. It's an interesting exploration, and I believe it does a lot more to make Bast's fey nature more apparent to make the bargaining between Reich and himself have much more weight, to make it clear that this is an obligation and a bargain and a contract between Reich and Bast, and that this is not just Bast fulfilling Reich's request out of the goodness of his heart. Right. There is a real exchange of supernatural bond here. When it begins, Reich has Bast under his thumb. And by the end of it, through this round of bargaining that the two of them go through, it ends with Bast basically owning Reich. So let's talk a little bit about what happens. It starts off with Bast and Reich going up to the lightning tree and essentially using Imbrils to cut a line in their hands and each one of them swearing their part of the obligation to one another and putting their bloody hand or thumb or whatever on the tree. And then it just repeats, but it repeats in that way that's like Groundhog Day where a little bit of what happened remains, but none of it remains. Yeah. It's like they're in a time loop here. 
it takes on a much more magical realist sensibility than what we saw in the lightning tree and more sinister right like this is also an oath sworn at midday on the longest day of the year on the summer solstice at high noon like that has a lot of cosmological significance there's a lot of how do you want this done? Are you sure this is how you want this done? How do you want this done? Are you sure this is how you want this done? It's repeated over and over again. Don't make any of this price go on my mom and my sisters. Don't let him come back ever. I want him gone forever. In many ways, this is a pact. And it's one that is binding in some extreme ways. And in all of this, Bast is basically giving Reich the opportunity to say, no, never mind. You sure? Okay. And it's almost like someone has done an animation, erased the animation, used the same paper again, and done it again. And so you see a little bit of that trace of what happened, but you don't. There are echoes. There are echoes of what has happened and hasn't. And the illustrations in here are lovely. And it ends with, instead of Bast using one of the emeralds, to cut his hand with him using the finest sliver of the moon to cut his hand. This whole sequence is surreal and magical, and it really highlights Bast's otherworldly nature. This is not just him being the town roustabout out making mischief. This is him actually doing real magic. At the end, Neither have a cut hand. Neither of them are bleeding. Neither of them are harmed. And this is where Bast asks for the flat river stone with a hole in it. But he does not continue on to also say he needs the needle. That will be later. That will be later. But as we are talking about changes. Let's move on to afternoon. Still. We start with another emerald pole. In this case, empty scales and a winter tree. Then Bran and Viet return with what they owe, which we saw before. And still currently, Bran is the baker's daughter. I only say this because at least in the audiobook, you can kind of tell that the gender change happened probably pretty late in editing. Then we get the sequence at Emberly's bath. It's largely unchanged. However, there are subtle differences that make it clear that Emberly has more agency, that she's not just being spied upon against her will. She's actually having fun with this. She's flirty and she's accepting the flirtatious nature of Bast's little blue touch-me-nots and the daisy crown and whatnot. And she's making choices like, he's not tricking her into dropping her shift. And she looks around. Is anyone here? And it's kind of playful. We also find out that, yeah, she stole his soap. So clearly she's been spying on him, too. That clearly existed in the previous one. But I'm saying that there are differences between even the one where we know that she stole his soap. And now that make it exceedingly clear that this is not Uki. Right. There's a little bit of consensual... Voyeurism? Yes. Yes. They're titillating one another. That's what they're calling it. Yes. Bast, after his excursion with Eberly, then goes off and finds Martin Still, which I'm going to say, this also is expanded, 
But there are some things that aren't as careful in the editing because there's a mention of how Martin is known for sharing his liquor with other people. And then there's still the exchange later with both saying we don't want hill wine. That said, there may be some things that are known to the rest of the town that Quoth doesn't know yet. Hmm. What we come to find out is that Martin is to moonshine what Walter White is to methamphetamines. <laughs> Sorry, Breaking Bad reference. I think most people got that. We also get a little bit about how he's known for being, in addition to a moonshiner, he is also a poacher. So that means that he lives doubly outside the law. Yeah, he clearly doesn't care about other people's laws. Or their money. It's not that he doesn't have money, he just doesn't believe in it. Or use it. So then we have Quoth and Bast having another conversation back at the inn. This is, again, largely unchanged from the lightning tree. A little bit expanded, but not anything with a lot of consequence. And then after that, we get... Probably the biggest emerald pole of the book so far. And it also includes a change besides just the emerald pole. There is another conversation with Costrel, and this is very consequential. Yep. So we start with that pole, which is a crescent of white horn, an oval of dark wood, a white tile painted with a dancing piper, an oblong stone etched with a candle, a disc of clay, the green stone that Bast received from the baker's boy, which that's actually where we have the weird gender swap for Bran. Bran. Yeah, I'm going to pronounce it like the drummer of Mastodon. Thank you very much. I'm going to pronounce it like the audiobook reader. Tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. We have a galling bit of sunbright brass and then the iron coin, which we know that Bast cannot handle on his own. Then Costrel comes upon him and Bast gives him a book of recipes. And Costrel also reveals that Emberly gave Costrel the location of her bath specifically so that he would pass it on to Bast. I love, 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 love the fact that we took things that could be read as Bast just being ooky. Ooky is my favorite word for this. Like being a voyeur, being manipulative, being unsympathetic to my eyes because I don't like non-consensual sexual stuff in my stories i just it it feels a little dare i say rapey and it's so changed so much more adorable and cute and people thinking that they're being more sly than they are everything being above board but also very much just acting like it's not you know like trying to pull one over on the rest of the town although like all the young people, including Bast, who isn't young, probably. All of the people that come across as being in their late teens, early 20s, are basically in a massive polycule. Pretty much. They all date and fork one another. I thought that was pretty fun. And then we get a little bit of deeper stuff over the nature of emeralds. We've come to find out that Costrel's grandfather also used to use these. And Bass says, the umbrals aren't like names that pin things to a page. Their nature is to twist and change. They remind us that the world is vast and deep. They teach us of the distance between catch and keep. So one, it's all rhyming, all kinds of fun there. 
And really what they're doing is showing a way to view the world. Like Bast is aware that there's not necessarily any inherent meaning behind these signs. They can mean whatever you choose to make them mean. Our fates aren't necessarily governed by these poles, but they can help our minds to find patterns and look for meaning, and they serve as an exercise. And Costrell says that his grandfather always said that you'd get a few every now and then that didn't make sense. And so you just kind of ignored those, you know, which is, again, like things like tarot or astrology. Like, I want to be 100% clear on my view on this. I think it's bullshit to say that it actually has any deeper meaning. But the second part of it is that it can be a useful way to figure out what your unconscious mind thinks of the world around it. I also want to go back to names are fine. Bast being the antithesis of Quoth in this regard. Naming and all of that mystical stuff that like the way that Quoth is magical. Learning the power over things. Learning how to control things by use of their name. And here is Bast saying names don't matter. Really what he's saying is you have agency over how you view the world over how the world looks to you. And some of it's unknowable. That whole difference between catch and keep, that's the difference between knowing and understanding. The emeralds aren't like names that pin things to a page. Once you have a name to something, once you attach a meaning to that name, you have some form of control over how you view that thing. The emeralds, though, are preliterate. They don't have names. They don't have specific things they're concepts and you can mix and match them however you like you can interpret them how you like we see that whereas bast is viewing all of this through the lens of a king costrel views it through the weeping queen both of these are equally valid and you also get some of the sense of affection that bast has for costrel because costrel's smart he's clever and also a bit of a trickster like Bast. I do want to point one bit out. Then there's the candle and the stone arch. And that just might be me with the association of a candle and the name of the wind, but doors of stone, whatever the heck is in the archives at the university, then the candle, because there's the door that Quoth found with that candle. But yeah, I think that this little bit here is where we get, in addition to the mystical, some of the practical side of Bast. He's letting his mind be slippery. Well, there's the part here where Bast says, by itself, it signifies the shattered king, majesty and power, but in ruin, fallen into despair. Despair, Kostrel asked, puzzled. Bast blinked and shook his head, genuinely irritated. No, I meant disrepair. I kind of feel like this is how Bast reads Kvoth. The tragic, once great hero, now condemned to live in hiding in a tiny town as the worst tap room in town. Get it right. It's the... The second best tap room in a town with one in. Yes. And then Kostrel upends that reading and has his own interpretation and I think we can also read this as 
if we're looking at the grander story, the flip side of Kvothe, which is almost certainly Denna. I think this also applies to Reich's mom. I agree with you. We also know that she will eventually find a queen, Queen Bee. What I really love about all of this, though, is that Bass doesn't just say, oh, Kostral, your interpretation is wrong. That's not the point of the Emberals. The point of the Emberals is that you read what you read, whatever you read, and it's an incredibly subjective thing. There's also the part where it looks like maybe Bast is blind to his own part in this story a little bit, to his own desires maybe, and dancing to somebody else's tune, which would be Rake. I think it's really useful to respect subjectivity in these sorts of things. And Bast does that. He just says, okay, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. But at no point does he have to say, you're right, I'm wrong, or anything like that, because how you read it's how you read it. Once Kostrel has left, Bast is once again confronted by Rike, who has found his river stone. And Bast is like, already? And then he sends him on a different fetch quest to go get the needle and borrow it from a house that contains no men. And I think it's actually both great and just a little ham-fisted here. Yeah, we find out that Gret is at least non-binary. Well, we already knew that because that was made very clear already and I don't think we need to hammer that in. However, as a person who is aware at least of how transitions kind of go, there is a little funny part about the fact that Gret has been drinking hearth and tea, which is funny because it sounds a little bit like HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy, which some non-binary people do do to lessen the effects of the hormones associated with their assigned birth sex. It might be essentially the same idea as puberty blockers. Great. Wonderful. There is a solution out there. I think in a world where up to this point there has been like no representation, sticking this much of it in one little tiny novella feels forced. Well, especially for a character that doesn't actually appear on the page, but is only ever referred to. Yes. Yeah. Like this didn't need to happen. Great that it is that we understand that non-binary people are not a gender, unless they happen to be like gender fluid and then they are whatever gender they say they are at the time that they say they are. That just is it. That's what it is. We've also got that kind of referring to the kitten. Well, she said she's a girl, so she's a girl. That's literally all you need to know. I say I'm non-binary or I say I'm a gender. I'm a gender. I don't have an association with a gender. All y'all know me as Phoenix. That's all you ever have to know. If you ferreted out my dead name, great. I don't use it. Don't use it. No one else should. Same thing. I don't like that they dead named Gret in here, but I get the point. Sometimes cis people just need to be told what their previous name is so that they kind of get that idea between the two. And honestly, like, so I have had one instance that kind of replays in my head of not knowing someone changed their name and trying to clarify to make sure I knew who we were talking about in a conversation. Not you and I, but me and another person. And it could have come off as seeming transphobic and seeming argumentative, but I was just confused. So I get it, but there needs to be a better way. It's all ham-fisted. This is very much, I think, just a little too hat on a lampshade on a hat. But this doesn't 
really change anything again. Reich still has to go off to the ash crack of nowhere or nowhere in order to get a needle from old man. And that's where we leave the story. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about seven words. You had the books this week. What'd you pick? Okay, so yeah, this time around, it is my turn to go from the books. And as we have established, I listen to the story and I don't always wind up counting the words. Although I have been known to do that in the audiobook for The Wise Man's Fear because it was kind of obvious. So this time around, I did go back. I didn't make Will do it for me this time. Thank you. And I got a list of seven word sentences. And then if there's any that were the same as in The Lightning Tree, I have a note about that. And then some of them are very similar, but changed. So that now they are seven words. So I have, is this a magic kitten? She asked. That happens in both books. But what didn't happen in both books was, anyone can talk to kittens, can't they? Yes, you can. No, 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 I meant like, that can hear back and understand them. You're an adorable little six-year-old and you are very not gullible, which is great. One that appears in both books and I think that you also mentioned, I saw mama kissing the maid once. There's one that changed. It used to read Bast nodded, right then, gone forever, to Bast shrugged easily, right then, gone forever. The punctuation changed also, but there's also Bast struck his hands together sharply once, which sent Reich off to go look for his Riverstone. There's one that changed from Emberly laughed and kissed him to laughing happily, Emberly bent to kiss him. And it just feels more her choice. Something changed from Kvoth saying, that's a big gesture from him, he's turned a new leaf, to Bass saying, I'm sure he's turning a new leaf, which is more <laughs> sarcastic. There's Kostrel saw him staring and looked away. There's also, what favor did you ask Emberly for? And at the end, there's, I can't tell what I don't know, when Bast was clearly saying, Reich, you cannot tell the people you're borrowing the needle from why you need it. But the one that I'm going to keep is, you didn't find it. She told you. <laughs> that one did make me genuinely laugh. Yes. I thought that's pretty funny. All right. So... My seven words from life came from our D&D campaign. Woohoo! Confession. I know my cooking is terrible. <laughs> For context, my character was under a mass suggestion spell and ordered to confess something. And my character, who is a kobold monk slash chef to the goblinoid encampments, confessed finally that, yeah, he knows he's a bad cook. Finally, you've only cooked for us like three times. Right, in one session. <laughs> I know, I actually made reference to this. I basically made my character gladly take some of your stew and put it in my mouth and then did exactly what Aragorn does to Eowyn's stew in Return of the King Extended Edition. And like puts it in, and I was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> it's bad <laughs> it is bad but yeah it just made pretty much everyone at the table laugh mm -hmm. i laughed i thought it was a lot of fun so i thought i'd share it with you folks so that i'd like to thank you for potting with me thank you for potting with me and thanks for listening to tales from the waystone join us next time when we conclude the narrow road between desires
We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash waystonepod. If you would like to chat with us or discuss our view on The Narrow Road Between Desires or any other such king killer content whatsoever. Or any other thing ever. Or just share a bunch of memes with us. We have a Discord. It's linked in the description. With that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. To discuss Patrick Rothfuss's newest 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 newest